There's a running joke um, in our family when my dad is around that whenever we go out to eat somewhere, we always end up eating Mexican food. And the conversation usually goes something like this. My dad announces that we're all going to be going out to eat at a restaurant. And he says, where do you all want to go and eat? And I will say, well, why don't we do Chinese? And he responds, what do you think about Mexican? And we always end up there. And for as long as I can remember, tacos, burritos, enchiladas, quesadillas, chips, and salsa have been a staple of the American diet, right? They're so commonplace here that that we don't even bother translating the words of those dishes into English, right? I have often asked Spanish-speaking students that were part of my youth ministry or teams that I coach how to say certain things in Spanish, You know, so I'll say, like, como se dice car? And they say, caro. Say, como se dice pass? Because I'm a soccer coach. And they're like, pasame. Como se dice taco? And they're like, taco. I'm like, no, in Spanish. Like, how do you say it in Spanish? And they're like, taco? And I'm like, yeah, how do you say taco in Spanish? And we get this back and forth. And they're like, I don't understand why you're it, right? And it becomes this very confusing thing. But it's just taco, right? English, Spanish, whatever language. It's just called taco. We don't translate these words into our language. It's just a part of our culture now. And it's pretty amazing to me how a minority culture can have such an influence on the dominant culture that it lives within. You see, for many of us, Latino culture has indeed influenced our kitchens and appetites, right? One of our favorite family dishes is Paige's fajitas, her take on fajitas. It's like one of the staples that we go to when we eat dinner every single week. But beyond our own kitchen and beyond our own cooking is our favorite restaurants, include Los Agaves, which I'm so glad they have in Ventura as they do in Santa Barbara. But already being down here, I've been taken out to Casa de Soria, Yolanda's, La Paria. But the influence of Latino culture, right, it extends beyond just food in our midst. Nearly one-third of Californians live in a household where Spanish is spoken at home. Paige and I both have pipe dreams of of one day learning sort of conversational Spanish, which will probably never happen, although I took five years in high school and junior high. But but we hope that Levi will grow up and be able to speak Spanish in, in some capacity. We've had friends that have sent their kids to Spanish immersion schools where they can learn how to speak Spanish, right? But it's clear that Latino culture whatever you think about it, has sort of swept through Southern California and the Southwest United States in general. And its influence has been and continues to be at the forefront of many hotly debated political issues for years. And we're going to get into all of them this morning. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to jump into... But it's not those issues that are relevant to our passage this morning, the one that covers our newspapers and social media feeds and televisions, I want to consider and think about perhaps how tacos and enchiladas and chips and salsa and Spanish-speaking immersion schools inform the way that we ought to read this text this morning. You see, the influence of Latino culture in America is just a classic case study of how minority cultures influence the dominant cultures that they exist within. And the observation that subcultures can shape majority cultures is an important observation for our text this morning. You see, the church in America has long desired to be a people and a religion that makes an actual difference in the world. We want to impact the culture that we exist within. And in these days of declining church attendance, 
We can so often find ourselves moving in one of two directions in our effort to do so, but unfortunately, neither of them empower us to actually make the difference that Jesus invites us to make in the world. These are a little bit backwards on your notes, um, if you're taking your notes here. But I wanted to just one couple of things. Identify the ways in which we try to make a difference in the world and fail to. And then identify the way that Jesus invites us to make a difference as Christians in the world. And how that empowers us to actually make a difference. The first is this. The church is misguided when it attempts to make a difference in the world by conforming to the world. The church is misguided when it attempts to make a difference in the world by conforming to the world. Uh, There is an art, if you're unaware, of doing youth ministry as an adult. We just had Scott come up who just spent a week with students. And there is an absolute art to doing student ministry as an adult. I remember when I first started doing student ministry, kids thought I was so cool because I was like 22 and I was so cool, right, to them. And then I got to be 30 and they were like, you are so old and so uncool. There's, you don't have a cool bone in your body. But you feel this difference as an adult doing student ministry between you and them or me and them as they speak and act in ways that are really different from the ways that I speak and act. They're often interested in things that I'm, I'm only sort of marginally interested in, right, to be fair and to be honest. And connecting with them can be a challenge. And one of the worst ways that I've seen adults at times go about trying to connect with young people is that they, want, they, they think that they have to become like a young person in order to do student ministry, in order to connect and engage with young people. But let me tell you, there is nothing more cringeworthy or meme-worthy than an adult who tries to act 20 years younger than they actually are. That is not cool, right? That is not even a little bit cool. I've often told potential uh, adult leaders for youth ministries that I've served in is that what students don't need is a grown adult who's acting like a 15-year-old. They know plenty of 15-year-olds. They don't need more of them, and they don't need you to be one of those. They don't need you wearing skinny jeans or posting on Snapchat or being on Instagram all the time. Like that. They, they know plenty of people who do that already. What they, in fact, need is the thing that distinguishes you from them. They need a mature person in their life. They need somebody who can speak wisdom into their life. They need somebody who actually knows what it means to accept somebody and let them know what it means to belong to a group regardless of who they are or what they've done. They need you to be different from them. See, conforming to youth culture, it never empowers adults to do youth ministry. And the same is true of the church in trying to make a difference in the world. You see, if we look back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we read in verse 1, or in verse 2, excuse me, that Jesus' disciples came to him, and he begins to teach them. Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is specifically for his own disciples. That's his audience to whom he's communicating to. And what, what we're trying to do in, in learning from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in so many ways is learning to live our lives as he would live our lives if he were us. Is we want to learn to live into the way of Jesus. And, and the reality is that this is a different way of living in the world than the world offers to us. But the reason why we live differently 
is for the sake of the world. So you'll likely hear me say over and over and over and over again throughout this sermon series and throughout our life together that the church is called by Jesus to stand as an alternative community, as a contrast society in the world. And we're not just different for different sake. We're supposed to maintain our distinctiveness as Christians in order to influence and make a difference in our world. You see, we explored last week the Beatitudes, and they cast this grand vision for the community of faith. And that community looks so different from the world that we live in, in which it's located in. In a violent world, disciples are to be peacemakers in a world that turns its head away from the unpleasant sights and flees to the suburbs and nicer neighborhoods, the disciples of Jesus are to mourn for and see the homeless, the refugee, the lost, and the brokenhearted. In a world where people do everything that they can to remove their vulnerability by pursuing affluence and wealth, the community of faith finds itself in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed. In a world where individualism reigns and life is about consuming as much as you possibly can, the disciples are instructed to show mercy and give themselves away as much as they possibly can. You see, the life of the community of faith is meant to look much different from the world around it. And this is a basic theme in the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is built on the assumption that the disciples of Jesus are different and it issues a call for them to be different in the world. And one of the great temptations that Christians and the church have is to live lives that look almost indistinguishable from the dominant culture around them. The Christian life, the life of a disciple, needs to be, though, a counterculture. That is, it, it sort of moves against the culture in some ways. And even the greater danger here for the church is that in our effort to make a difference, to be influential, we think we need to do it by the way the world says you have to do it in order to be influential, right? You gotta be popular. You gotta have huge churches. Come on, if you're gonna make a difference, you have to be big. This is the mantra of America. Bigger is better, right? You have to be famous. You have to have a lot of followers on Instagram. You have to, have a, you have to be trending at some point because this is how you make a difference, to be an influencer in the culture. You have to be affluent and powerful and rich because those are the positions and those are the statuses from which you can make a real difference. We see this in politics, right? Not to get political, right? But we see this all the time. And it's easy for us as a church to think we need positions of power and privilege in order to make a real difference in the world. But this is why Paul writes, this is part of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, it's not just in the substance of our message, but in our delivery of our message that we need to look different from the world. The goal of the church is not to be popular, rich, and famous. It is to be faithful to Jesus. The urge to function like the world and make a difference is real. It is very real. I feel it every single week but we have to resist the urge to conform to the patterns of this world. But the second way that the church can often be misguided in its attempts to make a difference in the world is by withdrawing from the world, to withdraw from the world. During Jesus' lifetime, 
There were a number of Jewish sects, that's S-E-C-T-S for the junior hires, sects in the world, right? And these sects, they kind of function like different denominations. Like we have Presbyterians, Lutherans, Nazarenes. Can I get amen? Amen. My gosh. Nazarenes. Oh, come on. We, we're going to work on that. We're going to work on that. All right, here we go. But there was one particular group that was known as the Essenes. The Essenes are popularly known today for writing manuscripts of scripture. They didn't have printing presses or, or Rico printers in their offices. They had to hand write and hand copy documents in order to have more copies of those documents. And you may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. And those were supposedly written, or they were written, by a group, this group that we know as the Essenes. But the Essenes were known for more than just writing and copying manuscripts of sacred literature. They're also known for their strict observation of Jewish law. They they were sort of this monastic community. They withdrew from the city of Jerusalem and they formed their own community out in the desert where they could sort of observe and do the the Jewish uh, rituals and live the Jewish community in its most pure form, away from everything else that's in the world so as not to be tainted by the world. And they called themselves, in fact, the sons of light, though their light shone for no one except for themselves. And some scholars believe that Jesus, when he talks about being the light of the world, has this group of people that's standing out, living their lives out in the wilderness. He has these in mind. And the temptation for the church in so many ways is to live like the Essenes to live in a way that withdraws from the world. We create these Christian bubbles of Christian community, hoping that we might be able to draw people out from the world and into our nice little comfortable bubble that is the church or our faith community. And much of this, though, it's motivated by fear. (laughs) It's a fear that the world will taint us and the world will taint our community. So we can't have our kids hanging out with those kids because our kids might get messed up, right? We can't hang out with those people because they do those things and we stay away from those things as Christian people. And so we withdraw. And if you read any of the statistics or research put out, Christians are the most likely religious group to not have friends who are not Christians. It is crazy how much we withdraw from the world. Now let me say this first. I understand the desire and longing to withdraw from the world. In fact, I think that there is a place for it. We discover that throughout Jesus' life and in his ministry, Jesus himself withdraws from his ministry in order to spend times of prayer and quietness and solitude. This is an invaluable practice for the life of the Christian person and for my own ministry, in fact. And I think it's a practice we need to incorporate into our lives is constant withdrawal. This too is why I'm a proponent of retreat, like our kids went to camp and they withdrew from the world for a week. Can I say on a total side note, as I was reading things on social media and just sort of interacting with some of the kids, I was like so sad not to be at camp this past week. Those weeks together are very formative, very formative. And I wish, I, oh man, I wish I could continue to be a part of that. But I think beyond just our students, we as a church, we all as adults need to know what it is to go on retreat, right? Especially in the 21st century where our lives are so busy. Just moving, 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 moving. We need to have a time when we empty our calendars and are just present with one another. And in fact, withdrawal is something that we do every single week as a church. 
If you were unaware, this Sunday morning worship service is a type of withdrawal from the ordinary rhythms of this life and into a time and with a community that has its attention focused on the scriptures and on the presence of God in the world. And we gather every week to withdraw from the world. But there's this important part of our worship service that happens every single week at the conclusion of it. We receive a benediction, a blessing, and we are sent back into the world. This is to be the pattern of the people of God. Withdraw to the presence of God, sent back into the world. Withdraw into the presence of God, sent back into the world. And we as a church, we have to resist the urge and the temptation to withdraw from the world. To just be comfortable with our own little Christian bubble where nobody can touch us and the world can't influence us at all if we're ever going to make a difference in the world. I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote it. He said, flight into the invisible is the denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. So if it isn't by conforming and it isn't by withdrawal that we can make a difference in the world, how are we supposed to go about doing it is the question. It is, Jesus says, by being salt and light within it. We make a difference by being salt and light within the world. It's interesting that Jesus uses metaphors often and parables in his teaching. I should do that more often. I'm sorry. But one of the fascinating things is that it stands in such contrast from the way that we teach. We're like conformity. These are verbal things. Conformity, withdrawal. And Jesus is like, I'm going to give you a metaphor, right? I'm going to give you something poetic. And the reason why he does is because the poetry and the metaphor and the symbolism, it just gives layers of complexity to what it is that Jesus is teaching here. And though we could deep dive into the complexity of what these metaphors illuminate to us about the role of the church in the world, one of the things that we certainly know that Jesus is saying is that in the same way that salt affects food, in the same way that light affects darkness, so too the church ought to affect the world. That is, Jesus is explaining to us exactly how we make a difference in the world Jesus explains the way the church is to make a difference in the world. And this is where, this is where the power of the text comes through and where chips and salsa have anything to do with this sermon. (laughs) A writer opened my eyes to the most obvious insight into how Latino culture has so rapidly infiltrated and influenced the majority culture. It wasn't by power. It wasn't by might or force. It wasn't by wealth that chips and salsa. This is interesting. I didn't realize this. Do you know salsa is the most popular condiment used in America since the early 90s? Past ketchup. Ketchup is still blah compared to salsa anyways, right? But (laughs) it isn't by force or a military or might or legislation that this minority culture shapes the dominant culture it exists within. Latinos have changed and are a changing American culture with simply by cooking or excuse me, by coming and being and doing the things that they are. 
That is through their labor, through their marrying, through their community, through their cooking. They are beginning to shape and change the culture that we exist within by coming and being and doing. Coming, being, and doing. You see, the world around us tries to convince us that simply by being the kind of people that Jesus calls us to be, simply by being peacemaking, meek, pure, lovers of our enemies, seekers of justice and righteousness, by being those kind of people, you can't really make a difference in the world. How can you make a difference? How can you make a difference simply by being those things in your community? They don't readily come with position. They don't come with popularity and they don't come with power. But maybe, but maybe, have you thought, maybe that's part of the whole point. They don't come with those things. I like the way Gerard Lofink writes it. He says, the radiant city on the hill is a symbol of the church as a contrast society, which precisely as contrast society transforms the world. If the church loses its contrast character, if its salt becomes flat and its light is gently extinguished, it loses its meaning. That is to say, simply by faithfully following Jesus within the relationships and community that we are a part of, we stand as a contrast in the world in which we live. And as we go about living that way, courageously, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we begin to make a difference in the world. And I know, I know, many of you sitting in this room, as I've talked to you over the past couple months, you know that this is true because you've experienced this reality in your own life. There are people in this congregation who just in the midst of ordinary life, you experience the love and acceptance and warmth of Jesus in powerful, life-changing ways. Not always the pastor, not always somebody who was affluent and had positions of influence and power, just ordinary people who were following Jesus. They were the people who mourned with you when your heart was broken. They were the people who extended mercy and compassion to you when you were in desperate need. They were the people who, when your life was full of chaos and conflict, they entered into it to try and bring peace and wholeness into your life and into that situation. And this is how, this is how Jesus instructs his disciples to make a difference in the world. And the call of Jesus is the same to his disciples in 2019 as it was the first time he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Faithfully follow me, and in so doing, you will be salt and light of the world. Hear that, church. We are salt and light of the world when we follow Jesus. That is, when we do the things that Jesus did, we are the chips and salsa, if you will, of the Christian community. We don't become these things. After years of following Jesus, maybe in like 10 years after following Jesus and being a Christian, then I'm gonna be impactful and make a difference in the world. It's every time that you are faithful and following Jesus, you are the salt and light in the world, showing the world that there's a different way to live. Every single time that you forgive somebody who doesn't deserve forgiveness, you are salt and light in the world. 
every time you choose not to be a consumer and spend your money on yourself, but to extend yourself and participate in works of compassion and justice in the world, you are the salt and light of the world. The world doesn't understand that. Why are you not using all of your finances and resources for your own satisfaction? Every time that you decide not to judge people based on their circumstances or the decisions that they've made, you are salt and light in the world. Every time that you decide to love your enemies, oh, that's a radical one. You are salt and light in the world, illuminating perhaps a different path forward in the world. As Peter writes, you church are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. In our faithfulness to Jesus, church, going where he'd go, being in relationship with those he'd be in relationship with, caring for those he would care for, forgiving those he would forgive. As we do these things, not just within our church, but in our community and in the world, we show the goodness of God. And the world will see our good deeds and give, give God all of the glory. I'm gonna end with this here thing, a couple thoughts. First, I hope that what you hear is not cliche Christian teaching or preaching. The invitation to follow Jesus is not like, hey, let's just all be nice people out in the world. It'll be very easy and fantastic. The thing that Jesus calls us to is radically, radically difficult. In fact, he got executed for it because it, it is so different. It's so different in the world. But the radical nature of the call of Jesus and our faithfulness to it, I, I feel like I'm quoting way too many people, but I love this quote by Bonhoeffer. He says, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Imagine living such a radically faithful life to Jesus that people question their disbelief. The city on a hill church isn't a single light on a hill. It's an illumination that's established by a community of people. And as we collectively follow Jesus together as a community of faith, we are salt and light in the world. Isn't that cool that we get to do that together? Amen. Let's pray. God, we long to be the salt of the earth. We long to be the light of the world. There is in every one of us a desire to live purposefully and meaningfully to live in a way that we shape and affect the world that we live in, perhaps making it a little bit better than we found it. God, I ask that you would give us the courage to follow you faithfully in our relationships and in our community, that in so doing, we would be the salt and light of the world. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Yeah.
Church, as you are sent into the world, may your good works be a signpost to the reality of God in the world. And may those in our community praise him because they see you.